I would tell you normally to turn to a place, but we're going to go through so many verses, you might just be best to watch it on the screen because there's not just one verse, there's probably 10 or 12. So in his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, Ed Stetzer tells a story of Caleb Kaltenbach, who is a pastor in Southern California, who 10 years ago tweeted a picture of Bibles, a stack of Bibles at a Costco that had been labeled as fiction. His, his tweet went viral uh, and news outlets, national news outlets picked it up and they began suggesting that this was a conspiracy against Christianity and the inciting peddlers of outrage began to call for a boycott. Like that's worked so well for us in the past. Caleb wasn't as outraged as they were. In fact, he really wasn't outraged. He thought it was kind of funny. He thought it was ironic and probably confusing for customers. <clears throat> and he believed Costco when they said, oh, we apologize, it was done inadvertently. But I promise you this, all those who were outraged by it did not. They saw a conspiracy and they were outraged. That is until the next outrage came along which was probably just the next day. Here's the thing. Caleb's story is, sorry. Caleb's story is far more complex than we realized. His mom and dad divorced when he was two years old and both came out as gay. His mom entered into a 22 year lifelong until her partner died relationship and they became LGBTQ activists. And his dad stayed in the closet until he was in college and then finally came out. Caleb was raised by three gay parents. And when he was 16, he started going to a Bible study really to disprove the claims of Christ. Because you see, as a kid being raised by gay parents going to gay pride events, he saw the hatred of many Christians as they spewed venom towards his family. And Caleb thought to be a Christian means you had to hate. And so he went to this Bible study having been invited to try to disprove all the claims of Christ. And the Holy Spirit convicted his heart and he became a Christian. Now he's a pastor. His mom was horrified when he told her that he'd become a Christian and she she spat in his face and kicked him out of the house. And that smoothed over eventually, but Caleb consistently loved his parents. And before they both died, he led them both to Jesus. He's written a few books about it. The first is Messy Grace, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. And the second one, Messy Truth, how to foster community without sacrificing conviction. And they're both filled with grace and truth and not a lot of outrage. What's interesting to me is that the Costco tweet got all the press. Even though Caleb's faith in Jesus and his witness to his parents was the real story. Outrage culture goes far and wide. Jamie was telling me a story about them yesterday. They were at the mall 
and these two drivers not paying much attention to each other but vying for the same parking spot got into it out in the parking lot. And it was such an evidence of so much brokenness, probably a little bit of ignorance and a whole lot of outrage. We have outrage everywhere from liberal activists boycotting Chick-fil-A. How could you do that? I mean, have you tasted it? Come on. To Hobby Lobby, which that's okay. No, I didn't mean that. Some of y'all love Hobby Lobby, I know. <clears throat> to Christians upset over Starbucks holiday card uh, cups or um, Harry Potter. <laughs> Outrage. Everybody's outraged. Writer and political cartoonist who actually spent most of his career criticizing the policies of President George W. Bush, Tim Kreider, he wrote this. So many letters to the editor and comments on the internet are from people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and found it. And while Kreider admits his job helped fuel all of this outrage porn, which is a term that's given for it, he laments the rise of it. And he says this, some part of us loves feeling number one, right, and number two, wronged. But outrage is a lot like other things that feel good, but over time, devour us from the inside out. The Yale psychologist Mary Crockett says this out of her studies, one hallmark of moral outrage is that expressing it feels so good. The brain imaging studies have shown that when we punish bad behavior by our posts or our, our outrage by what we uh, stand out against, when we punish bad behavior, you see activation in the brain area that we know to be involved in signaling rewards. It's receiving inputs from the dopamine system, like hits of dopamine hitting you as you're outraged. The problem is they're so short and you need more. When I'm gripped with fury at others, I shudder with disapproval and disgust. But then comes that hit of dopamine as I convey my morally strong position and feel that I have embraced such heated disapproval and certainly I feel that I must be right. And in that way, Outrage gives me a sense of moral superiority. I'm right and they're wrong. How could they? What kind of person would do that? It's directed at all sorts of people and it doesn't really matter where it's directed, it can still give me my dopamine hit. Deadbeat dads or corrupt politicians or transgender athletes or smug celebrities. All those people and their behavior is, is no similarity to anything I would do or anything that I am. And so I'm bolstered in my virtue by pointing out the non-virtues of all the others. But with every short-lived surge of dopamine, I become more like an addict 
scrolling to find my next hit, looking to be outraged the next time so I can feel better about myself. Now, no doubt, our world is filled with all sorts of mess and brokenness and error and evil. And there is much to be concerned with in our culture. And some of it deserves our indignation. Some of it even our anger. We should certainly grieve and mourn over the suffering and injustice that we see all around us while we work to change things and prophetically speak the way of Jesus. But we, as his children, need to better discern when and where and at what our righteous anger needs to be leveled or leveled at all, lest we mar the name of Jesus and undermine our own witness. We may think we're flipping tables like Jesus in the temple, but we might be more like the chief priest who tore his garment in rage while Jesus was innocent standing before him. Which rage do we want? Over and over again, the Bible speaks to how we can, as his people, be a community of peace in a culture of rage and fury and hostility and fear. The the Hebrew word for peace speaks to this so well. It's the word shalom. And we've talked about it before. You can't have church and not talk about shalom. Peace is all-encompassing, the shalom of God. Hebrew uh, Jewish people use it as a greeting, shalom, when they see you and when they depart from you. But it's not just, hey, how are you? It's a blessing, a blessing of wholeness and completeness. It's, I desire that you would be made complete, that nothing would be missing in what God has designed for you. That's a big greeting. (laughs) Shalom's a whole lot easier. Shalom. It's this idea that your life would be made whole as God intended. You see it throughout scripture, like when Job's friend said, you will know that your tent is secure. You will examine your home and miss nothing. It will be a state of shalom. And when Solomon completed the temple, he brought shalom to it. He made it complete. And when Joseph, still unrecognized by his brothers, was standing before them in Genesis 43, 27, saying, he inquired about their welfare, which means shalom, and said, is your father shalom? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is shalom. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And when the prophet Isaiah looked for the coming Messiah, he described him as the prince of shalom, wholeness, completion, as it should be. One who would 
make things complete, especially the promises of God. One who would heal damaged people and repair the brokenness that sin had inflicted upon their lives. It's so much more than the absence of conflict. It is the wholeness as God intended. James, the brother of Jesus, who was also a leader in the Jerusalem church, gave very practical steps on how to maintain such peace. He said this in James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is such a common verse, and yet I have to confess to you, I probably fail in that area close to every day. I am not always quick to hear. I am certainly not always slow to speak. I, I try to be slow to anger, but man, Interstate 85 brings it out in me. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Two chapters later, James says this in James 3.18, and the harvest of, harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He, he just said, what will not produce righteousness is when we are angry as a man can be. But the way we can produce righteousness is not in our anger, but in our sowing of peace. The writer of Hebrews also puts it plainly. He just says, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone. I mean, talk about a really good, simple, what is it? Five word command. Strive for peace with everyone. Now, to strive for peace is so much more significant in the Greek language than what we just, I'm striving for that. Doesn't sound like we're doing much, but in the Greek there, it's more of, a, of an urgency associated with it. They are chasing after it. They are hunting it down. They're pursuing with all their might, pressing into it. And so when we strive for peace, we must do it with intensity, not in a lackadaisical attitude, but with sure fire intensity towards something. We're to strive for peace by pressing for it by all possible means. We're to strive for peace by relentlessly pursuing it at all times. And we're to strive for peace by pushing for it with all that we've got. And when we do this, we're doing it because Jesus himself showed us the way. Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, Shalom, is the one who purchased our peace and nothing would stop him from accomplishing his purpose. That's why Paul said in Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This all points to how we are to live. 
We see that Jesus is the man of peace. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who purchased our peace. He's the one who can give us peace. Peace, by the way, that Paul says, surpasses all understanding. It goes way beyond what you could imagine or think. But all this is designed not just to show us that he is one of peace, but that we also are to be ministers of his peace. And he makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. So clear. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who make peace, who strive for peace, who work towards peace, who press into peace. Blessed are those for they shall be called sons of God. Now, he's not telling us how to become a son of God. He's telling us that because we're sons of God, we will be peacemakers. He's describing who the children of God are. They're the ones who have had their peace restored and purchased by Jesus. And they are the ones who have received it for themselves. Now no longer do they face the enmity of God, but they are the ones who are in peace and they are to become peacemakers. But if you were to honestly ask people in our country today, what the church is known for, would it be peacemaking? I think it would be more in the category of outrage. Hatred, like Caleb experienced as a child growing up in a gay family's house. I think most people would see the church as something altogether different than what Jesus has called us to be. Well, we're standing for the truth, and I believe in that. But I think Caleb himself could show you how he could stand for the truth and in conviction and still love his parents to the point that he led them to Jesus. How would the world see us today? Are we peacemakers? Are we hate makers? Are we outrage makers? Are we those that uh, have got the truth and we're going to hang on to that truth and shove it down your throat? Are we going to be peacemakers like Jesus said to be. We as peacemakers are to be like our father who is a God of peace. And if we're his kids, we should have his attributes. <laughs> My kids look a lot like their mom. Hopefully not too much like me, but there's some of me in there. And they have certain characteristics that comes from us as a family. Some of them are really, really great. Some of them are not. But as kids of the Lord, his children, his sons and daughters, we're to have what he has and we're to be peacemakers. What he loves, we love. What he pursues, we pursue. His children are known by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace just like he was. You know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, he gets into more specifics as to what this is going to look like. Down in verse 43 of Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There's that sons of the Father language again. He is 
attributing all of these things that we're to live out because we're his kids. And then in verse 46, he continues, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now we get hung up on that. There's no way I can be perfect. He's perfect. What he's drawing our attention to again is that because we're his children, we are becoming like him. We're having the things that he has as the, as the attributes of who we are. Now it's possible, we've seen these verses so often that we've just sort of forgotten how radical they are. I mean, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who does that? I mean, seriously, I don't even think a lot of Christians do it. I'm not sure that I do it very well. Praying for those who I'm mad at, much less, I mean, okay, if they persecute me, I've got to pray for them. But if, if I'm just mad at them, I don't have to pray for them. You know, they're, they're evil. But he's saying we're to pray for our enemies. And our enemies are anybody that are in opposition to us, to our stance, to our view, to our worldview. Anyone that's on the other side, God calls us, Jesus calls us to love them. Like he loved us. How did he love us? Oh, he gave his life for us. I mean, he came purposefully to buy our peace and our redemption and gave his life for us so that we could have life. That's how he loved. Do we love those who oppose us like that? Do we love those who persecute us or persecute our brothers and sisters around the world? Do we pray for them like he's commanding us to here? We're too busy assessing the threat levels to our freedoms. We're too busy being outraged by all the ungodliness that we see. We're too busy fighting a culture war we were never called to fight. We're still busy. We're trying to grab something that we thought we once had that wasn't really that great to begin with. We have to give ourselves to what he's called us to, not the things that give us the hit of outrage that makes us feel better about ourselves. As his peacemakers, we should be building bridges, not walls, and not echo chambers. We should desire reconciliation, not animosity. And we should be willing to do whatever it takes from a grand gesture to a small little action. A handshake, a greeting, a prayer, looking an enemy in the eye and longing for peace in our heart. Jesus never shied away from the things like this. When he saw a gap, he filled it. When he saw a need, he met it. He rolled up his sleeves and he got to work in the, in the hard and dark places of our own heart. And he brought wholeness and healing and he brought redemption and peace. What part do we play in bringing others to that same peace and redemption as we've had. And so in doing, 
He provided us the most ultimate example of how we are to live this way. And Peter said it so well in his letter, his epistle. He said this in 1 Peter 2, 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, and I read that in Peter making that description of Jesus, and he's writing these words years after the day that he was in that garden with Jesus. They've come to arrest him, and Jesus stepped up. Who do you look for? Jesus, I am he. And Peter drew out his sword trying to retaliate, to fight against, to push against. And Jesus said, put your sword away. When Peter's writing these words, don't you know he's remembering that night? And he's been changed by the one who restored him, redeemed him, and called him. I'm not naive and neither is Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't work, peacemaking. Sometimes our efforts and our steps towards it gets thrown in our face. Many times people refuse because, as my dad always says, it takes two to tango. To make peace, you're going to have to have it on both sides. But just because it's refused or the potential of being refused doesn't mean that we should not offer it. And that's why Paul said to the Romans, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. That's our goal as peacemakers in a world of outrage. If possible, so far as it depends upon us, we will live peaceably with all. So where are we today? I believe God is dealing with his people, at least in our country, in the Western Christian world. He is purifying and he is definitely, there are definitely camps that are being established. You have a whole wing of Christians that are really about the outrage right now. They are really determined to take something back and to make it great again. And they are determined to enforce a morality upon a nation and upon a people and to punish those that don't live up to it. That's called a theocracy. And I just don't believe that's what God's called us to. I believe God's called us to the kingdom. He's called us to a kingdom. There are those that are pushing that agenda and they are pushing it and you see it all over the place. They're looking for a platform. I personally believe that that is not going to stand. I don't believe it's what the will of the Lord is. But can we be on the other side where we are called to live as Jesus did as peacemakers? Those who make peace. Do we need a detox from our outrage? Do we need to get off that dopamine pump, start learning to live peaceably with all? Might I suggest get off social media, turn off the news, show kindness, be a peacemaker somewhere, somehow, wherever you are. Let's build bridges of peace, not echo chambers of agreement. Let's stop flipping tables in rage. 
and invite people over for dinner and let them sit at our table. Let's stop fueling rage with our post and start ministering reconciliation and demonstrating his love. We are called to be his disciples, known for our love for one another and our love even for our enemies. We're not called to be those who outrage about everything that comes down the pike. May we continue to be, and I believe God is helping us, to be that kind of community of peace, even in a culture of outrage. Amen. My wife is going to come and we're going to pray for you. Share what thoughts she has. Last week she shared a thought about the water that is being poured into our cup to flush out all the debris of sin and brokenness that's in there. And it was so revelatory. I've had more people comment about that this week, living in that reality. So I'm always expecting what Donna shares is gonna be really, really great. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Go ahead. Thanks. I loved one of the definitions that Chris gave us at the beginning for shalom, that it's whole. Um, and that sort of started me on a track, which is hopefully what I can share right now. Um, only a whole heart tuned into the Lord that is free of fear and ambition and prejudice and anger can receive the peace that he's offering and then have that in them to flow out when life happens. Um, and I feel like this is another opportunity for us to respond either because you have the Holy Spirit or because you need the Holy Spirit yes. or both. <laughs> um, because in John 14, he says very clearly that he's leaving us the Holy Spirit and peace. So I just want to read a few verses and then I'll pray. The friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. I like to say it will make everything make sense to you. He will remind you of everything I tell you. I'm leaving you well and whole. That's my parting gift to you, peace. I don't leave you the way you're used to being left, abandoned and bereft. In the Amplified, that same section says, my own peace I now give to you, so don't let your hearts be troubled, don't let them be afraid, stop allowing yourselves to be agitated outraged, disturbed, do not permit yourselves to be fearful, intimidated, cowardly, or unsettled. Wow. Wow. He didn't leave anything out. <laughs> covered them all. He covered them all. Peace is the solution to all of those things. But if we are not taking it in, we don't have it to give. At the end of John 14, Jesus said of himself, so the world may know how thoroughly I love the Father. I am carrying out my Father's instructions down to the last detail. I feel like in your word today, 
all of us have an opportunity to <laughs> increase our peace, to increase our obedience, and by doing that, we highlight the Father. But I know for myself, I can't get from where I am easily irritated, easily outraged to peace, perfect peace, without the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. So when I pray for us today, I'm praying that you get the peace that you need and that you engage the Holy Spirit so that you have peace to give. Yes. Let's pray together. Father, as, as always, we are both convicted and comforted when you drop the plumb line of truth into our lives and we see where we don't line up. You always share that truth so tenderly and with such hope in it because you can and do transform us. You can take all of the ugliness in our thoughts, in our motives, in our choices that we make, and you can bring them to light and cut them out and give us the divine exchange where we receive the Prince of Peace so that we can make peace in his name. Yes, Lord. Father, I pray for anyone who is angry or fearful or outraged really because they've been hurt. Mm -hmm. Pray, Father, that your kindness, your gentleness, your ability to bind up broken places in our hearts would minister to those who need to be whole. And Father, for those who've already received your wholeness making in their hearts, that we would respond to the work of the Holy Spirit to identify places where we've picked up an offense where we are seeing something through the eyes of the world and not through the eyes of the Lord. Hmm. Father, that you would clean up our scrapes and bruises from living life this way. And you would call us again to be ministers of reconciliation, Hmm. to believe you and love you in such a way that the world can see how incredibly real you are. Lord, we thank you that you come to bring us peace. I pray for, as Donna has, for anyone here today that is lacking peace in their life. Maybe because of their own sin, their own brokenness, their own shame. Maybe because of things that have happened to them or by them. We know we have a very real enemy who is out kill, to steal, and destroy. But we also know the promises of God are yes and amen. And that you have come to set the captive free. 
and to bind up the brokenhearted and to give sight to the blind and to allow the lame man to walk. I pray, Lord, like Jay saw, that vine falling down off the tree, the chains that hold people today would be broken in Jesus' name. The chains that hold us back from full fulfilling your purpose and, by, and, and experiencing the fullness of who you are, those chains would fall away in Jesus' name. And I pray, God, that you will help us to be ministers of reconciliation in a day of rage, that we will be led by the Spirit into conversations, into encounters, into moments of breakthrough. And Lord, that we will see many come to the peace of Christ to be changed. Help us to be the community you've made us to be, Lord. Help us to be your people that represent you well, that when they look at us, they see an aspect of who God is, that they see the love of Jesus, and they see the hope that he offers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.